Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm good. All the kids are back from camp today. So we're kind of just reworking into our schedule. It's kind of like re-entry and I didn't prepare very well for it mentally or anything else. So it's been a little bit of a hectic morning, but it's all good. Well, we have swimming lessons. So my youngest is, Wagayu is taking swimming lessons. So I spent the morning actually kind of hanging out at the pool with a friend and talking. It was it was amazingly relaxing. I don't tend to do that very well. And I got a nice little video of him uh, doing a big flip off the diving board. So that was kind of fun. Cool. That's impressive. I'm very impressed by diving board flips. I always think that it looks so easy. And then I always get up to the diving board and like get that fear, you know, like your knees shaking. You're like, oh, shucks. Like I didn't actually want to be doing this thing. So I really stink at jumping off of diving boards. Yeah, I'm not so good at it either. The other thing that's kind of fun at swim lessons is that my daughter Claire is teaching swim lessons. And so while I was watching him in his class, I also got to watch her teaching these really little ones. And it does, it's good for my heart to see my kids do things that are so responsible. And I don't know, and she's really good at it. She's only 15. She's really she's great with the kids. So I'm proud of her. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. My so our 15-year-old was just at 4-H camp, but as a volunteer, not as a camper. So like as a counselor and cabin leader. And so, yeah, it makes me feel good that they're giving back to the world. <laughs> me too. Me too. It's very satisfying. I know it's not the end-all be-all of successful parenting, but when it happens, it's like icing on the cake. It feels really good. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I, uh, we have a great interview today, and I got to interview a friend of ours, Mark Vatsas, and Mark is a moderator of the very popular Facebook group, Parenting with Connection, that has over 13,000 members. That is a lot of members, all interested in connected parenting, yes. It's crazy. I used to be a moderator there, and I remember when I first jumped onto the moderator team, I think there were 200 members. Wow. Yeah. I remember when it started, a friend of mine actually started the group and I just can't believe how it's grown. And I, I think it's evidence of the fact that there's a lot of need and there's a lot of interest in parenting with connection and helping our kids um, really do well and heal as well as they can and all of those kinds of things. So it's a great group and it is open to anybody um, who requests to join. Mark is married to my friend Bethel and together they have six kids and he's also a TBRI trust-based relational intervention practitioner and a parent coach. So this was a really important interview for us to get in early because we really want to make sure as we're providing resources for adoptive moms that we're providing voices from all sides of adoption and that includes dads and birth moms and adoptees. Plus, I think it's just always really interesting to get a dad's perspective. And Mark is the expert, is the dad expert when it comes to trust-based parenting. And he hasn't always parented with connection. He will tell you in the interview how he started with more of an authoritative parenting style, which I think is a lot of us. And so it's really cool to hear his transformation and why he believes in these parenting principles so strongly. 
Yeah, I really think you're all going to love this interview. Let's hear from Mark. Okay, so um, we've already told our audience a bit about you, but why don't you tell us just generally a bit about your family and sort of your story in brief? All right. Um, I've been married to my wife, Bethel, for 27 years. We have six kids, four biological and two adopted through foster care. Oldest is 24. She's finished college and is back home saving up for her own place. And uh, then I've got a kiddo who's out on her own, a kiddo who is uh, in college and home for the summer, kiddo in uh, just about to start a senior year of high school. Um, And then my two adopted kiddos are 13 and 12. Okay, so similar ages to my youngest. My youngest are 13 and 11 and a half. So we're kind of right in there, the same. All right, so how long were you parents before you adopted? How old were your kids when you started the foster adopt process? When we were placed with our two kids from foster care, um, our bio kids were 14 down to six. We had just had our first six weeks of everybody in school all day. And we were placed with two toddlers and set, reset the clock. How did you feel about yourselves as parents before you adopted? What, you know, what did you feel about parenting and about yourself as a dad? You know, to the extent that I thought about it at all, I guess I thought about it, I thought that I was pretty average parent, a good parent. It was something I didn't really often even think about. But if I were to have thought about it, I would have thought, yeah, we're decent parents. We've done a good job. Can you describe what your kind of general parenting style was back then? Very much traditional, old school, authoritarian, reward and punishment, my way or the highway. You know, you're going to do it and like it. (laughs) Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about type. Uh huh. You can have a good attitude no matter what kind of stuff. Basically, you know, a combination of what I grew up experiencing as a kid and what our society in general promotes as how parenting ought to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you first brought your kids home, um, did you try to parent that way still? Um, not really, because we f- figured out pretty darn quickly that, that these kiddos were not like anything we had ever had to deal with before. The, the one thing I think, I, I think I might have done so if we hadn't had the, the, the good fortune of uh, having a, a therapist provided through a grant. So there's a grant that provided a, a therapist um, who specialized in kiddos with trauma under six. Um, she came in fairly soon after they were placed with us. She walked in and she took one look at my two adopted kiddos and looked at one of them and said, wow, he's terrified. Hmm. My wife looked at each other and were kind of puzzled. It's like, what do you mean he's terrified? He hasn't stopped smiling the whole time he's been here. She was able to help us see that the, well, the smile we were seeing wasn't a genuine smile. It was a masking smile. She, get, she, she told us what to look for. It's like, you know, look at the smile in his mouth, but now look at his eyes, right? His mouth is smiling, but his eyes aren't smiling. Okay. Until a genuine smile, you're going to see it in the eyes as well. And once she pointed it out to us, it was really pretty obvious. It wasn't hard to see at all. It just didn't even know to look for it. And so once I saw that, wow, this kiddo really is scared, 
and you could see the his smile was pretty mask-like, right? Because it wasn't, it didn't move, right? It was kind of fixed smile on his face. You know, once once we started to to get an idea that okay, not only are we not seeing what we think we're seeing, but we don't really even know what we're not seeing. It caused us to look at things differently, and we we figured out from there pretty quickly that everything we thought we knew about parenting left us woefully unprepared for the head we were dealt. And the same was true for the training that we were given to, right? I, I think they gave us the best training they knew how to give, but it was, it was actually, it was the same year that uh, the Connected Child came out. Ah. You know, that whole world of parenting from a trauma-informed perspective was really very new. And, um, you know, we had recommended to us to read the Connected Child. I didn't read it. My wife read it. I didn't read it. I went into this really pretty clueless about, well, not pretty clueless, completely clueless, really, about what we were dealing with. What led you to Connected Parenting? How did that journey from the kind of parenting you had done for, did you say 14 years? Your oldest yes. 14. Had so just for 14, 14 years, you'd been parenting one way. Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly found out that wasn't going to work. But how did you find your way to connected parenting, which is an entirely different way of parenting? What happened was within a few weeks, our calm, orderly, you know, predictable home environment was just chaos. It was actually Bethel that um, we can't keep on this way. We've got to find something else. And st- she started looking for what those other things would be dragged me along. I mean, I wasn't really resisting, but I was pretty skeptical. Dragged me along to a conference. Um, it was uh, that particular first one was Heather Forbes. And it was the first time I had been exposed to an explanation of why kiddos with histories of trauma would respond differently. And it, it made sense. You know, that, that first conference I really don't remember much of it. There was one thing from that first conference that really stuck out. Uh, She said, our kids are telling us what is wrong. We're just not listening. And that phrase just, I couldn't get it out of my head. And I had a chance to test it out just a few days later with my youngest bio kid. Um, He was six. We had soccer practice. We were late. I, I realized that we were late for soccer practice. So I'm racing around trying to find shorts and shin guards and cleats and all that, right? And I, I gather all that stuff up and I run to, to grab him to say, quick, we got to go. We're going to be late for soccer practice. And instead of leaping up to follow me, he fell into a puddle on the floor. I paused for a moment because this phrase has been going through my head so much, right? So instead of doing what the old me would have done, right? The me from th- three, four days ago would have done, which would be to Right. I would have picked him up, thrown him off my shoulder, run to the car, put him in his car seat, shoved his feet into his cleats and driven like mad to soccer practice. Right. And pretty much ignoring any protests. But instead, I had this going through my mind. He's telling me what's wrong. I'm just not listening. I stopped and I said, OK, I'm, let's, let's try this. I'm going to try listening. See what happens. I put down the soccer stuff. I picked him up. I took him to my office. We sat in the chair with him on my lap and we just talked. And it took a good 20 minutes before he was able to explain to me at their last game, they had lost and that felt really yucky. They weren't even keeping score, but he knew what the score was. And so, and he knew that they had lost and he knew he didn't like it. What he didn't know was what to do with those feelings. 
Right. Right. I thought back to when I was his age, and I remembered that I had been on a t-ball team where we had lost every single game we played. And you know what? He was right. It did feel really yucky. So I told him about my experience when I was his age. And I said, listen, we signed you up for soccer because we thought you'd have fun. So if you're not having fun, you don't have to go. You know, why don't you think about it and decide what you want to do? He left my office. You could just see a completely different demeanor in, you know, in the way he walked out. You know, it was like a weight had been lifted from his shoulders. When it came time for the next soccer game, he was dressed and ready to go early. Went and played, had a great time. And this whole thing about not wanting to go to soccer never came up again. You know, I've had a lot of time to think about that since then. And I've realized, you know, it was never really about being afraid to play, right? That wasn't, that wasn't really ever the problem. He wasn't afraid of losing, right? Which was the way I was initially hearing it when he started, right? It was that he had these negative feelings that he didn't know how to process, didn't know what to do with. And he just needed to know that those feelings were okay, that he would be okay, that if it happened again, we could talk about it again. And once he knew that that's how it would go, it never it was never a problem again. Out of all my kids, he's the one who has, was really the most passionate about sports. That's interesting. That's a great a great story. Like you had this powerful moment of realizing you were learning something new and it was actually working. So did that give you confidence? I would say it made me curious. Okay. At this time, I was working as a software engineering manager. It was in my, my third decade of a software engineering career. You know, I have an engineer's mind. I have an, I'm an engineer by temperament and by training. Whenever I encounter something that I don't understand, my inclination is I want to understand that. This experience gave me, you know, kind of a, a, a landmark of saying, okay, there's really something here that to explore. There's, there's something to this. It's completely counter to everything that I've ever thought about parenting. Yes. <laughs> but I can't argue with the result. And, you know, I think the big thing about it was not just that it worked and we had a positive result, because it doesn't always work out that way. Right. I think the big thing was not just that we had some change behavior for the better, but that, you know, we both left that encounter feeling good and feeling connected to each other. And that was an experience that I think was not familiar to me in parenting, right? In fact, I remember previous experiences, you know, having, having some pretty significant conflict with my kids and being really, really frustrated that, that we couldn't seem to find a way to connect. And I didn't even have words to say what, what, what I was thinking or feeling. I just knew that it wasn't going where I wanted it to go. And I didn't know how to do it differently. And so now I had some, you know, I had some vocabulary to go along with what I was experiencing and a, and a path to explore to find something different. So I started reading the books, watching the videos, going to the conferences. Um, we got a, um, a coach who is a, a local therapist that did this kind of work. But where things, where things really clicked for us, well, for me in particular, but for, for both of us, I think, was when we found TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention. The, everything that we had done before that had been really helpful in helping us reframe uh, our perspective on how we were seeing things. TBRI came along and it really appealed to me as the engineer because 
it had a really strong firm grounding in science. Yes. Right. But it also um, was the first model that we had seen that really made a point about balancing nurture and structure. Right. We, we went to uh, an Empowered to Connect conference back when Karen Purvis was still doing them personally. So I got to talk to Karen Purvis and ask her a question in one of the breaks. And we left there thinking, this is what we've been looking for. This is, this is awesome. And yet we continued to really struggle for another. Finally made things click for us was um, we had Debbie Jones come out and do an in-home intervention with us. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of things from that that were particularly useful. The first one was she was able to model for us what this looked like with our kids. The videos and stuff that, T- that TCU creates are great, but our kids just didn't look quite like the ones in the videos. Right. right? And so she was able to show us how to adapt this for our kids specifically. But I think what was even more helpful was she was able to look at what we were doing and tell us what we were too close to the problem to see. Sure. Um, For me, it was, Mark, you're really great at the nurture part of this, but you really suck at structure. Mm. She she said it a whole lot nicer than that. (laughs) With her nice Texas accent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And for Bethel, it was the opposite. Bethel, you're naturally good at the structure piece. You just need to increase your nurture to match. And when we did that with her help, when, when I increased my structure and Bethel increased her nurture, we finally were on the same page with how we were parenting and things really started to click. That was, that was our experience into, into getting into this, you know, this transformation. It took years, really. So about, do you remember what year that was? If I'm remembering correctly, it was the summer of 2013. Okay. So you already understood TBRI. I mean, as much as we all can, you were learning, you were reading, you'd been to conferences. So you had the principles and you were using them. Yep. As consistently as we could. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> but then when Deb came in and did the in-home co- well, coaching, what would you call it? In-home intervention? An in-home intervention, right. Okay. Then you were able to refine what you had learned to really narrowly focus more in on your strengths and weaknesses and your particular kids and their issues. Yeah, I think you, what you might say is she was able to help us figure out the bits that we weren't doing. Okay. Right? Which was different for each of us. Right? Okay. So I was pretty good at coming in with the nurturing response to misbehavior to helping with the calming piece when they were, you know, flipped their lid. But I wasn't so great on the follow through to say, okay, let's work on this skill. Right. Right. And Beltha was really good at the structure piece of it. Um, and, it, you know, she, I, I, I don't want it, this to sound wrong because she does awesome at the nurture piece. She's really good at it. Uh, she was educated as a school teacher, right? So she's kind of got the school teacher temperament back on task. It was, it was really just, hey, remember, get the nurture piece in first. Then you can do the part that comes naturally. I think I think you and Bethel are exactly like Russ and me. You know, I'm high nurture. I have a much harder time with the structure. I start strong on structure, and then I kind of. And Russ is stronger on structure. He is a nurturing dad, but it, especially under stress, he goes higher in structure, and he has to bring it, bring that nurture piece yeah. back because I think when things feel out of control, our inclination is try to we increase our control to try to regain it. And that does, 
not work. And I don't mean that specifically about rest, just. Yeah, no, I think, I think bringing in that piece is a really important piece because it's, it's really about where are you functioning when you're in that state of overwhelm? Talk some more about that. Because, well, when, when you're in a good place, right, you're calm, you're rested, your needs have been met. It's not as hard to, to balance out those things and, and to be delivered. Remember, oh yeah, put the nurture and peace in first or, oh yeah, don't forget to follow up with the structure now that you've connected, you know, and done the nurturing piece. It's when you are stressed and overwhelmed, you tend to revert to the old patterns rather right. than the new learned patterns. Being able to do that and be consistent with it and be mindful of what you need to do in the moment when it's 9.30 on a school night and you know, you're know you just completely exhausted from the day. This is the moment when you know the difference between doing it right and doing it wrong could be the difference between your kiddo getting to bed quickly or having another three hours of dysregulation. Can you give an example or a story about sort of this balance of nurture and structure in either in your family or it could be someone you've worked with, just how you find that sort of sweet spot. So this, this whole idea of balance of nurture and structure, probably one of the more challenging concepts to get. There's not one right way to do it all the time. It's really a matter of looking at where is the kiddo at in this moment and responding to where they are in this moment. I had one family I was working with, and this was a kiddo when, when this kiddo got overwhelmed, she would she had a pretty well established pattern um, that she would start to run out of the room. On the way out of the room, she'd be shouting some mean words at whoever could have been any any of the other family members, typically mom or dad. And she would run to a room where she could find some toys, and then she would play with her toys and use those toys as a way to basically dissociate, right, from the big feelings. That was how she learned to cope with being overwhelmed. Okay, since some people may not know what dissociate means, can you just kind of... Yeah, so she, she basically, in, in this instance, it would basically be pretending that that problem that had just happened didn't even exist. The first part of just running away, you know, that's a common response to feeling overwhelmed. And that's really about, I need to put distance between myself and this thing that's overwhelming me because it's just too much. And this particular kiddo would get into another room and find some toys, and she would use those toys as a way to, to calm and cope with the big feelings she had. But it was also, it was really more than that. It was, you know, it, it, she, she needed to be able to pretend, at least for a time, that that problem that was still unresolved in the other room didn't still exist. Okay. It was a way of turning that off. And so from a, I'm not, I'm not a therapist, so I'll, I'll give you the layman's interpretation, right? It's, it's really talking about the opposite of association. So instead of associating all of the events together into a whole that we need to be present with and do something useful with, we dissociate those elements. We take them apart and we separate them in a way that is unnatural as a way to not be overwhelmed and to cope with them. So it's really kind of an opposite of being mentally present. It's a way of taking yourself and being mentally absent. And as a pattern, if it persists, it can be a really unhealthy pattern in terms of long-term mental health. Right. And, and I would think that with her parents, the thing about dissociation is there's no connection. 
you're separating yourself from the feelings, from the, the challenge, everything, and taking yourself into this little world. And I'm sure what her parents wanted to do was build trust and connection. Sure, but they didn't, they didn't know where to start. So what I was able to help them do with this particular girl, help them see that the first thing they needed to do was get up and follow her to where she went and meet her where she was at. We can't immediately take her back to where things went wrong because she's not ready, right? What we need to do first is connect with her where she's at. So it would really be engaging with her in the play that she's doing, right? So she's still not facing the problem that she has, but she's not alone anymore with it either, right? Now, now we're here together, right? And then in the course of that play, getting her to a state of calm, reconnecting, and then saying, hey, you know, we can play for a couple more minutes or maybe giving her a choice. How long do you want to play before we go back and, and try this again? Do you want two more minutes or three more minutes? And then we set a timer and we go back and we'd go back to where things went off the rails and maybe with some additional scaffolding in place, maybe talking it through what's going to happen beforehand. Right. And, and, and helping, um, helping her to, to be six so she can be successful when we try it again. Right. So the, the, the connecting nurturing piece is meeting her where she's at. The structured piece is we still need to be successful in whatever, you know, was overwhelming. How do we help you be successful in that moment? That is really good. That's a really good example of the balance because, you know, those of us who are inclined to fall in the nurture ditch, you know, go too far one direction, would be a little inclined, especially when you're tired to say, well, she's calm. We talked about it a little bit. Good enough. But then we aren't creating those new neural pathways. We aren't giving her a chance to do it over and do it right. And so that's where I think some of us, like me, have to, be, have to push ourselves to do the structure piece. Right. I know for me personally, that last piece is the piece that I don't want to do. Right. Right. That's, that's cause, cause that's work. Of course that's, it is. Yeah. That's not the fun connecting stuff. That's work. I don't want to have to do that. Well, and I think a lot of parents, we have a little bit of fear. We're going to go back and try to do this again. What if it all goes wrong again? Or what if it's worse and I don't know what to do? I think one of the surest signs that you're struggling with the balance of nurture and structure is if you are walking on eggshells. Good if point. You're, if you're afraid to engage with your kiddo because it might go off the rails, things are out of balance. And is, does that always indicate not enough structure? No. It it's be, just either it's, way. I would say, I would say it's you, most often not enough of both nurture and structure. Okay. Both need to be higher because whenever we increase one, we need to also increase the other. That is such a great example. I, I mean, as I look back at our parenting, which has been, you know, so complex, you know, it's true. When we have had times where we were walking on eggshells with one of our kids and we didn't feel confident. And I think it's because, well, things were very extreme, but also we didn't, probably have that balance right, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think it's also really important 
you know, not get rigid in our application and feel like we have to follow a script one particular way. Because there are times when our kiddo is not ready to go back and do that again in that moment. They might need a little bit more time and connection before they're ready to go back and try that again. So it might not be right away. It might be later that day. It might be the next day. And yeah, that's, especially if they're tired and it's late. Especially if they're tired and it's late. <laughs> and if we're tired. The other thing I found is sometimes my kids' worst behavior is when their blood sugar is low. So I'll end up giving them like a spoonful of peanut butter or something to eat before we even try to move on to the next thing because they just don't have the capacity. Yeah, and I think making sure that making sure that their intrinsic needs are met it's kind of like when, when you got a, an appliance that's not working, the first thing you ask is, is it plugged in? Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, that's what, you know, nutrition, hydration, sleep, those kinds of things are like the equivalent of, is it even plugged in? Because boy, do you feel foolish when you figure out that you've been fiddling with the device and it's not plugged in and that's why it's not working. Well, and I think, you know, just for in basic parenting, most parents are fairly aware of this with like a infant a young toddler like oh she's acting that way because she's really tired but i think where people start to struggle is when the kids get a little older and they're like that's not an excuse for this you know is what i think sometimes parents will say like well yeah i'm tired too or something dismissive you know Mm -hmm. and they expect the kids to be able to rise above that need we can't be lazy parents you know we have to really be working hard to meet the needs and um, parent in a better way. Right. So the way I describe it to to parents I'm coaching is when you have kiddos who are neurotypical kiddos who have not experienced trauma, have not had maybe significant medical issues or other developmental issues that might be getting in the way, relatively resilient, right? Those kiddos have a pretty wide tolerance for the kind of parenting they could receive yeah. And grow up to be reasonably healthy, well-adjusted adults. But when you have these additional challenges, right, then you need parenting that is closer to the ideal. Yes. And it's, there's a smaller window of tolerance for the kind of parenting you receive, you know, in terms of the probability of a good outcome. You know, that narrower window is necessary for certain kiddos, but mm-hmm. it's really good parenting for all kiddos. Right. So no reason if we're going to do this to not apply it to our bio kids and our kids with whatever challenges to get, you know, at the, at the same time in the same way. So that, that is an interesting thing. Do you feel, I mean, did you change the way you parented everybody? Absolutely. Yes. Habits die hard. Right? Yeah. So, and that's just human nature. So breaking those old habits and learning to do that was a little more challenging with my older kiddos. Also, older kiddos, you have higher expectations. Learning to recognize that my, you know, and this is something I had to learn with all kids, is that just because they did it yesterday or this morning or even 10 minutes ago doesn't necessarily mean that they have it what they need to, to do it in this moment, right? And that was more true with my older kiddos. I, my expectations of you know, how they would respond in a situation didn't always take into account where they were at in this moment. So yeah, there, there are a lot of things I had to learn to do, but I did, you know, as I went, 
you know, I became more and more aware of how the parenting that my uh, bio kiddos had received was not only was it not ideal parenting, but in many ways had been really harmful to them. When you were learning about connected parenting, you'd been parenting this traditional authoritarian way and you were learning about connected parenting. Was there a debate going on inside your head at all about what could maybe go wrong if you made this big switch? You know, I, I think that it's only natural for parents to worry about the future. Yeah. Right. And so you're thinking, you know, you're, you're always wondering, am I being a good parent? Are my kids going to turn out okay? Right. At the end of the day, that's what we're, that's what we care about. Are, are my kids going to be okay when they're adults? You know, so I don't think that it's that so much that that fear went away, but my, what changed was my uh, understanding of how much my kids were already not doing okay in relation to how I had been parenting. And when I realized that my good intentions had had that impact that I never, not only didn't intend, but, you know, never would have wanted, I, I was absolutely horrified. And, and, you know, there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes with that, that I had to figure out what to do with, because I couldn't go back and undo what I had done. I could only work on changing things going forward. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So you do something different from a lot of other coaches, though. You kind of take it to the next level because you go into people's homes, right? Yes, it was such a powerful part of my own experience that I wanted, I wanted to be able to do that for other people as well. But, you know, being able to go in home, you get a, a whole nother level of, of uh, interaction. I can observe how the parents are interacting with their kids and get a lot more than what the parents can necessarily tell me. Great, great. That's wonderful. Do you have a very short message that you'd like to give to dads who might be listening who are a little skeptical about making such a big change for these children. You know, I, I think that it can feel really awkward for dads. Society tells us that we need to be stern and, you know, enforcing the rules. And it's not really that we don't still do those things at times, but it's really about what, what is our primary role with our kids, right? And the way I look at it is, we, we dads play a lot of roles. You know, sometimes we're the coach. Sometimes, um, you know, we're the, the teacher. Sometimes we're the, you know, uh, the encourager. Um, sometimes we're the champion and kind of the old sense of the, the um, not the person who's like, you know, head of the team champion, but the, per- the champion who goes out and fights on behalf of somebody else, right? We're the advocate. We're there for our kids to help them when they need somebody to, 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 to be there. So the way I look at it is we want to get out of this place where we find ourselves being adversaries with our kids, where the problems that we're having get in between us, right? And we want to turn that around so that instead of being adversaries with the problem in the middle, we can turn that around and we can be allies working on the problem together. That is beautiful. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast, being one of our early guests. We really, really appreciate it. And 
I look forward to catching up with you and with your wife, Bethel, because I haven't talked to her in far too long. So thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. It was, it was fun to do it. Lisa, that was such an awesome interview. Thanks. I really enjoyed it too. Mark and I had a lot to talk about. In fact, we had such a great conversation that we are offering uh, the entire interview, the video interview for free for any of you who'd like to listen to it, watch it. You can hop over to the show notes to find the link for that. Definitely. Just head to theadoptionconnection.com slash two to grab the full length unedited video. Mark really has some great anecdotes and encouragement that we just couldn't squeeze into the podcast. And one fun thing I wanted to mention that we weren't able to include in this podcast portion of the interview is that his family became so committed to trust-based parenting, connected parenting, that his oldest daughter actually went to school at TCU and got her master's from the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. So they're pretty much all in. Yeah, that's amazing. So if you want to hear more from Mark, um, you can find him at seenandheard.coach. That's his website where he offers, he talks about those in-home interventions, which are such a powerful tool. If you're just feeling really lost or kind of just need a crash course in what Parenting with Connection is. And then we mentioned this at the beginning, but he's also a moderator over at Parenting with Connection, which is on Facebook. So if you just search on Facebook, Parenting with Connection, there are definitely um, some quick questions to fill out before you'll be approved to go there, but it's an open group in so that you don't have to be an adoptive parent even to be in it. But anyone who's looking to find out more about Parenting with Connection can join that group. They just want to keep it a safe place. So just make sure that you answer those questions. Mark is pretty active over there. So it's a good place to get a lot of support and also get to know Mark a little bit more. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. Today's question is, should I change my adopted child's name? So Melissa, you are an adult adoptee, which gives you, I think, a very unique perspective on this, as well as an adoptive mom. So why don't you take a run at this question first, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it's such a good question. I feel like you can never go wrong when you include your child's original name in their name. So I'm not necessarily opposed to changing a child's name. Three of our children came to us as older kids. And so I felt very strongly about giving them voice and getting their opinion about whether or not they wanted to change their name. We basically kind of assumed that they would want to retain their Amharic name. They're from Ethiopia in their name somewhere. So it was kind of like, would you like to legally change your name or would you like us to give you an American middle name and then you can kind of choose what people call you? So our kids actually chose different things. Two of our kids really wanted American names and they wanted legally to be that American name, but then we kept their Amharic name as their middle name. And then one of our kids wanted to be introduced when she came to America as an American name, but she wanted legally to stay her Amharic name. So we were able to do that, each of those options for those three. That's pretty great. So So your thought is that if they're old enough to weigh in on the decision, you should flex around what they want. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's important to let them have ownership in it. And 
really at the end of the day, if you give, if you include enough of your child's name, names on a birth certificate through, you know, now you can have multiple middle names and all of that stuff. They kind of do have a lot of options. And we've been really flexible with our kids, even though the legal papers say one thing, you know, we kind of let them still choose how they want to be introduced. Even one of our kids by birth changed how he is being addressed now in school. So, and one of our children now goes by her Amharic name as well. And so you know, it kind of works there. All the names are on the paperwork. And so they kind of have the option and we haven't had a strong opinion about how they're addressed in those ways. We're just kind of, kind of following their lead. Yeah. Well, when we went into adopting, it was very important to me to keep my children's names in some way, especially if they had been named by a parent. You know, some kids in Ethiopia are named by the nannies or I imagine that happens in other countries too, where children are abandoned. And so the name isn't is, is still a name from their country, but not necessarily from their family. And I think that for me as a birth first mom, you know, uh, the idea of this name being something that their first parent chose and gave to them and probably thought a lot about was really important to me to hold on to. And it's funny because when we, we brought our little boys home first, And so our plan with them was to keep their first names as their middle names and then give them an American first name because we thought it might be easier for them. And I remember flying to Ethiopia and we're still writing lists of names and crossing things off and writing it all out over and over, trying to decide. And by the time we got there, we had settled on first names, but we got to know them by their Ethiopian names while they were in Ethiopia, while we were all there. And somehow those names just felt right. They had both been named by their parents. And those names just became familiar to our ears and they felt right. So when we came home and we, you know, later did the readoption process, we gave them American first names still, but we maintained their Ethiopian names as their middle names and then have always only called them by their Ethiopian names. So it's a little bit of a funny, it's just sort of a funny blend of thought and legal names, original names and all of that. Well, we went back only two months later to bring Calcidon home. And somehow by then, I don't know if our thinking had changed. I, I can't tell you for sure. But by then we decided, okay, Calcidon is her name that was given to her by her parents. We're going to keep that for her first name. And then we gave her a middle name. And then a year later, we returned for our other daughter. And we did the same thing. We kept her Ethiopian first name for her first name, gave her a middle name. And she was older when she came home. She was 10. When we did her legal readoption in the U.S., she decided to add her first mom's name as an additional middle name. So she has an Ethiopian first name, an American middle name that we gave her, her mother's name as another middle name, and then, of course, our last name. Yeah, we've done it all different ways, to be sure. Yeah, we had the same experience where once we were in Ethiopia and you know, all the nannies, all their friends are calling our kids by their Amharic names. It did become, they did become way more familiar. And so we did have a season. Um, the kids still wanted American names, but when they first came home, it, you know, it's kind of hard after you've called a child a name for even like two weeks that we were in Ethiopia to just switch it up. So we kind of had this transition period where we called them both names for a while and, um, and then kind of just dropped one. It is, it's weird to change your name when you're 13 or 14. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 
I think also sometimes I get questions from foster parents who are now adopting a child from foster care. And that's a sometimes more complicated situation because the child may have, of course, lived with a name that their parents gave them for a long time, but they may or may not have lived with their parents a lot. They may have been with extended family members. They may have been in and out of foster care. And I think in that case, if the child is old enough, it's really important to talk to them about it. You know, is this, you're going to take our last name. We're adopting you. You're going to have a new last name. How do you feel about keeping your first name the same? You know, and this is a good conversation to have. Um, With little ones, I don't know. I think it's one of those things you have to go with your gut a little bit. I still firmly believe in honoring parents, first parents. And I feel pretty strongly about that. But I also think sometimes there's a reason to change. There's sometimes... There's, you know, like, I think I know somebody who um, their daughter they were adopting had the exact same name as one of their other daughters who was already in their family. You know, like, sometimes you have to have some flexibility, even if you are passionate about holding on to a name or whatever. Yeah, I think I appreciate your perspective as first mom and a birth mom, because I imagine even in adoptions through foster care, where there's still an open adoption and an ongoing relationship with a birth mom, it can be hard if a name gets changed. But again, like you said, if the child's older and has a really strong opinion about it, um, there's just a lot of things to consider. And I, so I think at the end of the day, where I kind of land with this is, you know, there are a lot of things to consider. There are a lot of people's feelings to think about. And I think it's good to ask the questions and think through it, be intentional, you know, be as sensitive as you can. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's a really hard right or wrong answer. And like we said, you know, kids can, and people can change how they're addressed, which name they go by. So there's a little bit of flexibility. I always like to just tell parents as an adoptee, give yourself a little grace. I think we put so much pressure on ourselves as, as adoptive parents to get all the things right, you know, so that we don't maybe end up with an angry adoptee or end up with a child who's really upset with how we handled something. But at the end of the day, you know, we do the best that we can. And sometimes just because of situations or other traumas, kids end up being angry for anything that they can find. And so it doesn't mean that if you had made a different decision, that a situation would have turned out differently necessarily. So I just always like to say that to just kind of allow people to not feel so much pressure to do the right thing, because I think there's a little bit of flexibility in there, like you said. Yeah, I think that's true. I have one little story to tell about uh, my oldest son, my first son who was adopted, you know, I gave him a name in the hospital. It's on his original birth certificate, but of course that was sealed and his parents gave him a new name. And when we met when he was 16 years old, he said, so what was my name? What did you name me? And when I told him, he was like, what? I always chose that name when I was playing make-believe with my sister. I always chose I had given him the name Christopher and he said, I always pretended my name was Chris or Christopher when I was a kid and we were playing together. So it was sort of this funny connection. I, I won't assign a huge amount of value or I don't know what to credit to it, but I just, it was a very interesting moment for us. That's a really cool story. I bet you that was fun to make that connection. It was. So if you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or call and leave us a message at 208-741-3880. If you need more personalized help with 
a question that you have, we do offer private coaching. For more info, you can head to www.theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.